Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Please subscribe, leave a review, comment, share, and consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, even at the producer and sponsorship levels. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Martine Kalau about her book, The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the New Workplace. Martine Kalau, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. It is a pleasure to be with you today. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation about your book, The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the New Workplace. Super important topic. It's one of my favorite topics, so I'm super excited to talk with you about it. You're joining us from the D.C. area. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. Before we get started today, I just wanted to share... Martine's bio with everybody. Elevation strategist and organizational development expert Martine Kalau understands the challenges of creating inclusive work environments. Her book, The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the New Workplace, makes DEI accessible to everyone in the workplace. Through her company, Martine Kalau Enterprises, Kalau addresses the unconscious beliefs and implicit biases that limit organizations, including those related to the Black and immigrant experience, through strategy development and implementation and education in the form of workshops and discussions. She is an author, speaker, and DEI consultant dedicated in her career to creating bridges across different groups of people to foster greater empathy, collaboration, and prosperity. What a tremendous background. You're doing a very important work. Before we dive on in to talk about your book and dissect it a little bit and, and pull out some of the key takeaways, uh, anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background or personal context? No, I actually just, you know, this is my second book. My first book, um, you know, when you're reading my bio alludes to immigration. So my first book was my memoir, um, my experience of having been uh, stateless and undocumented in the U.S. And so uh, that is why, you know, through that experience, I was able to, you know, just gain a different lens into the experiences of marginalized communities, um, having been part of various marginalized communities, um, being, it gave me exposure to, and a way to immerse myself in all the different various communities and just widen my lens. Thank you. And so you're an immigrant, you are a woman of color. I don't know if there are other stories that you identify under, but I think for this kind of a conversation, I think it's important to highlight that. Uh, and for listeners, you know, I'm a straight cisgender white dude. So I, you know, I come to this, uh, conversation as an ally 
mm-hmm. and with good intentions, but also recognizing that uh, this is something you know I continually have to learn and grow in. Uh, and and I hope others listening will will try to do the same, uh, whether you're part of one of these communities or not. Let's talk about then the why of this book. Clearly, you're in the space. You're doing a lot of work. Um, so it makes sense to write a book, but I imagine there's more to it than that. Um, so why this book? Why now? Why this book? Why now? A couple of reasons. Um, one is because as I work with organizations, uh, I find that we went through, we're, we're, we've gone through different phases around DEI. The first phase way back when, 10 years ago, five years ago, was really just about diversity. And, um, you know, the, the beneficiaries of diversity efforts in uh, the workplace were predominantly white women. And that's statistically, you know, you can prove in and you can see it in, in the numbers and the representation um, in organizations, but not across all organizations. And so what I like to say is that there's still more work to be done, right? Certainly, we want to create more diversity and we want representation across various um, underrepresented groups, including women, including white women. But in addition to white women, we want everyone and other groups to be included. So we went through that phase. And then, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, in response to, um, you know, the racial injustices that were going on um, in our nation, a lot of companies responded and their responses were, in also in response to the pressures they were getting from employees, right? And so sometimes when they were reacting, when organizations are reacting, it can come across as performative, right? And sometimes in some organizations, they, they, have, they have the best of intentions, but the, when, when we're reacting and res, when we're in their, their effort to react, um, there are a lot of programs that were, that were established. Now, the thing is that DEI, if we really want to em, embrace it and immerse it into our organization, we've got to embed it into our business structure, just like every other business structure. Like when you think of uh, security, right? Security, data security is kind of like within the last decade, it's become much more pronounced in the or- in organizations. People don't respond to data security and say, oh, it's the right thing to do. And then they start throwing programs around it. No, they understand the value of it, why it's going to impact the bottom line. And then they create strategies around it. And everyone is involved in it. And it's, it's part of the everyday language and the culture of the organization. So that's not where the direction in which DEI has been going, which is why a lot of organizations, after creating these programs, they realize that they can't sustain it. Uh, they usually have the same group of people trying to run the same program, you know, dri- driving these programs that are not sustainable. Um, everyone else in the organization doesn't understand why we're doing this, right? And it feels forced and it's hard to just maintain. And so everyone's set up for failure around DEI, including that one person or that gr- the group of three people that are responsible. So can I, can I just that, add, can I just yeah. add there? That's a really, really important point. And what we end up doing is inadvertently while we're trying to, to give voice to marginalized individuals and groups, we end up 
burdening them with all of the work (laughs) of of running these programs, uh, often without a lot of real institutional support behind it. And so then everyone just assumes, well, it's, it's just, you know, it's just them, you know, feeling like they need, uh, some program to feel better about themselves or to feel like they fit in with the organization, not recognizing, uh, that perhaps it is a commitment from the top leadership but if they're not engaged in it, if it's not part of the structures, it's not embedded into and integrated into the systems, the policies, the practices of the organization, then it really, at that point, it, it either is performative or you're, it, there's good intention, but you're just putting all of the burden on the people that are already burdened. And that's, that's not a good way to go either. Absolutely. And it feels it becomes an extracurricular activity. And, and it, it, it sometimes can be counter, it's counterintuitive, right? Because what we know is that when, you know, studies have shown some, sometimes when people are forced to attend, they're mandated to attend a diversity training or what have you, they end up retaliating, right? Or they, you know, so what we want to do is really, um, hold everyone accountable, but not position DEI as this extracurricular, but it's part of the framework, the fabric of the organization and everyone benefits. And so the work that I do, and I'm going to get to your question in a minute, I just wanted to kind of, you know, preface it by saying the work that I do is getting organizations to understand and actually accept and admit and, and identify how DEI can actually impact return on investment. Uh, I think historically, um, where you know the way that DEI has been presented, and because it is such a personal, um, it's such a deep um, conversation. Um, it's people feel, generally speaking, that it's cheapening it to talk about how we actually how it actually can benefit and drive revenue. I think it's okay to talk about both, and what I do with my clients is give them permission to acknowledge that, yes, it's the right thing to do. And it's the smart thing to do for our business because it will reach, it will lead to return on investment. We, we just, we have to talk about both, right? So clear, clearly there's a human case for it. It is the right thing to do. We should be doing it regardless But in the modern global economic system that we are find ourselves in, we we have to talk to the bottom line impacts and we have to talk about the business case of it. So there's a a human case, there's a, there's a business case, just like if we're talking about environmental sustainability uh, or or other, other social impact work within an organization, all of these things, you know, there's a human case for it. There, there's, it, there's an ethical moral case, it's the right thing to do, but they, it never gets traction until we can start to really talk about the business case and show the impacts on the bottom line. So both are absolutely important. I agree with you. We don't need to feel like it's cheapening the conversation. Uh, it's just being pragmatic about the conversation and trying to be as impactful and effective as we can be in moving the needle. It really is. I mean, I think that's, you know, when I talk about the DEI of ROI, uh, the ROI of DEI, um, and I worked with with organizations, one of the very first things I asked 
I, I work with them on is identifying what is that return on investment? Let's put a number to it, right? Just like, you know, when you develop a sales scorecard, let's develop a DEI scorecard. What's our goal and how are we going to get there, right? If it's a, you know, business to consumer organization, well, it's really easy to think about where there's opportunity to increase our market share. If it's a business to business organization, well, let's think about our partnerships. Let's think about retention. Let's think about referrals. Let's think about the makeup of the organizations that we are partnering with, right? So with all that said, um, leadership certainly is responsible or should be responsible for driving that message, right? And, and, and um, they should be the first who are bought into how DEI can actually impact the bottom line, if anything else, right? We know that it's about social impact and it's about, um, you know, the, the, it's about emotional intelligence. It's about people's experiences, but it's also about, um, driving business. So the leadership team, the executive team should certainly drive that and, and, and really be bought into that. Typically human resources or the equivalent are usually the people that are tagged with the responsibility of really like developing strategy or programs around DEI. But what I'm suggesting is that the, the missing component, the group that is absolutely essential to the makeup of any organization, forget DEI. We think about the makeup of the organization, uh, the, the group that influences attrition, that influences somebody's career trajectory, promotion, performance management, compensation, all of that are middle managers, right? They really, when you think about who actually has, who liaises between the top level and bottom um, and who can really influence what the trajectory, the makeup, um, the demographics of an organization is, it is middle managers. And why not? Because in within with most or, most organizations, and I have you know with my background in learning and development, I've built and and rolled out and implemented many a manager development program training program. Why not embed DEI into these manager development programs? So that is really what this book is. This book, you know, is really meant to be a primer for managers. It's really meant to be kind of like a workshop, a self-paced workshop, right? You read each chapter, it's 150 pages. You read each chapter there at the end of each chapter, there's an exercise. One is self-reflection and the other is you're, you're you know, uh, you're given a, a task on how you can implement and take this to your team. And the concepts in here are relatable to everyday management development, how to mentor, right? You know, and so how do we mentor and, you know, how do we incorporate DEI into mentorship? Well, let's think about the fact that in some organizations, depending on, you know, the size of the organization, depending on the makeup and the representation of the organization, not everyone knows that they have access to reaching out to somebody to be a mentor. So what if as a manager, you know, we supported each and every person on our team or, or we actually looked at and, um, and, 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 and considered the individuals on our team who are part of underrepresented communities and made sure 
and reminded them, reassured them that they can gain access to mentors within the organization. And we ushered them into that process, right? Because a lot of these partnerships, a lot of these, you know, um, relationships, um, I, you know, I worked in a tech company for many years. A lot of the relationships that happened between senior leadership and, you know, junior level employees typically happened on the golf course, or they typically happened at a bar. So if I wasn't, if I wasn't likely to go to a bar and have drinks and, you know, the, someone from the C-suite would happen to be there and I don't play golf, then what's the likelihood that I would know that I can access this individual, right? Access senior leadership and leverage them as a mentor. So these are the kind of concepts that the ABCs of diversity um, really help managers consider. So it's really not, it's not about giving them these new, all this new jargon around DEI. It's really just helping them to pivot their lens around how they manage, right? Um, to create more inclusion in the way that they manage. That's really it. Yeah. And that's why the ABCs of DEI, because it doesn't have to be so complex, right? Yeah, We're not yeah. an academic institution where we have to learn and understand you know, critical race theory, all these, you know, different um, concepts um, around DEI using the right terminology, you know, making sure that we're being politically correct. And right. This is not how we approach DEI because that's what makes people so scared, right. To, to engage in DEI because that's what they think it is. They think it's, it's this ethereal concept and there's all this academic jargon aligned with it. But really, DEI is just, is really, it starts with thinking about how we can create more, we can invite more people um, to, to be part of our teams and to excel in our teams and remembering that not everyone on our teams comes from and has the same experiences or backgrounds or the same accessibility, right? Even, even when they're on our teams and even when they're in our organization, not everyone knows or feels like they have the same accessibility. And the truth is not everyone does. So as, our, as managers, we've got this superpower, right? Like we've got this cape that where we can actually be the active ally, right? Even in meetings, if we see that, you know, there's someone who is less, who, who generally doesn't get a chance to, to share or speak in the meeting. Well, as a manager, you can establish a new norm, right? You can say going forward, I would love, you know, let's have everyone go around two minutes, everyone speak and share, you know, give their feedback on something, right? This is the power that we have as managers. And these small, what is seemingly small actions can actually make a huge impact in creating more, more as a greater sense of belonging for people. Yeah. 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 Safety and belonging, right? A culture of safety and belonging where everyone can contribute be their true authentic self and contribute in meaningful ways to the team and to the organization on a regular basis. That's what we're shooting for. That's what all of this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about. Uh, But we don't want to stop at diversity. We don't want to stop at equity. Both of those are very important, but that's not enough. We have to get to an inclusive environment and ultimately create an atmosphere of belonging where everyone feels needed, wanted, valued, and that they have the opportunity to contribute. 
Uh, and that's, that's what we're shooting for. And I also like how you really focus on uh, middle management, because I completely agree. While, while I want top-down commitment to these sorts of efforts, and while I want grassroots bottom-up uh, energy behind these efforts, it's ultimately, it's the middle management that's going to be the linchpin okay. of whether this is going to get carried out or not, because they're the ones on the front lines, managing okay. the people, um, interpreting corporate strategy down the line, all of that, right? They're the and, ones and, who the people, right? I mean, exactly. think of who's actually making the ultimate decision as to some who who joins and is, enters the organization. It's, it's the same group of people, it's middle management. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy. Courses, micro-credentials, and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. All HCI Academy courses, micro-credentials, and certificates are designed, developed, and delivered by award-winning and internationally renowned scholars, educators, thought leaders, executives, and practitioners. Our courses, micro-credentials, and certificates will help you make your mark on the future of work and make an immediate impact in your organizations check out the HCI Academy and our many course offerings and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. And I tell people all the time, you know, HR, if we think about HR as a functional area of the organization and big organizations, they have an HR department, they may have sub departments, training and development, uh, uh, leadership development, whatever, uh, name it. Yeah. Yes. Name it. Right. You can break HR down into a bunch of functional areas. Um, in any company of any size is going to have at least an HR department, if not sub departments and sub, uh, specialty areas. But HR, doing HR within an organization, like the vast majority of it, 95, 99% of HR that happens in an organization happens at the middle management level. It doesn't happen in the HR department. HR department is there to help facilitate and help train and to help people understand right. what to do. But it's the middle managers that are ultimately implementing yeah. what, you know, what we're, you're trying to do. And in this case, we're talking about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, but whatever it is, right. It's the middle management that's either going to do it or they're not going to do it. And so it's either going to take hold or it's not going to take hold. So anyone listening today, you know, I have middle managers all the way on, on up through executive level individuals uh, who listen, um, you know, 
if you're a senior executive, senior leadership level within an organization, get committed today if you're not already to making this a priority, a strategic priority that you're going to put time, money, and energy behind. And if you're middle management, anywhere in middle management in the organizational hierarchy, what are you doing every day to do the simple little things that are going to help people feel safe, help them to feel like they belong? Like you said, it doesn't need to be rocket science. Um, and there's a lot of potential uh, potholes that we can step in that people get really nervous about. And, and because people get defensive and nervous, they, they tend uh, to not engage at all because they don't want to mess up. They don't want to say something uh, inappropriate or offensive or insensitive. And, and while I don't, you know, I, I, I'm an ally in the space. I don't want to say anything insensitive. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but I recognize that it's probably inevitable if I'm engaging in the space and that's okay. Cause I'm just going to do the best I can and people are going to give me, show me grace because they see that I'm trying. So let's, let's uh, not be so afraid of doing something wrong uh, or be so defensive uh, about, you know, being in a defensive posture about how we're approaching this, that we don't choose to engage so that we can learn, we can grow and we can help those around us that perhaps don't have the same voice or the same privilege that we have. Yeah, I was just going to add two things to that. Um, one is the real work around DEI when when organizations ask for me to come in and lead courageous conversations um, around DEI. Uh, it, it's really it really courageous conversations around DEI really involves people's willingness to take the leap of faith and make mistakes, right? The courage to do that. And the courage to, if you're the recipient of something you don't hear that sits well with you, to first, you know, make the assumption that the person's intent wasn't malicious, right? And that's the problem, right? Because right now is, you know, a lot oftentimes, and when we hear something we don't like, we automatically put people into this good, bad dichotomy. This person's a bad person. Well, you know, when we're starting to really engage in these courageous conversations, it's really about assuming that, no, this person isn't bad. This is not a mark on their character. This is, you know, their intentions weren't necessarily bad. And this is an opportunity to educate them. And when we are the learners, right? And we are the ones who are about to engage or ask the question and we, we don't want to, you know, step into a landmine. It's asking permission to ask a question, right? That's really what it involves. So we've got to get into a space, into a culture with, within our organizations where we can say, okay, we're all in it together and we're all, this is a learning this is, you know, an opportunity for all of us to learn. And we're all on a learning continuum. There isn't one person that knows everything around DEI, knows everything, right? We're all on this, you know, continuum um, to learn and develop and enhance our skills around DEI, right? And then the last thing I want to say, because I know we're, we're almost running out of time, is, you know, when one of the things I want to communicate to organizations is that the goal of DEI, as far as I'm concerned within an organization, is to cast the widest net, right, in attracting talent, finding that talent, identifying that talent, and making sure you're mitigating any, any biases, any filters you have to bring in that 
the best talent into your organization and keep them, retain them so that they can actually in, increase in their productivity and work and feel good about the work they're doing, stay engaged. And that ultimately affects your bottom line. It drives your bottom line. That is the goal. So when we keep that in mind, um, what we it allows us to do is understand why DEI is important, how it benefits us, and that DEI is not about just bringing in anybody. That's not what it is. You know, creating diversity doesn't mean having quotas or shouldn't mean just having quotas. It means identifying the best people and looking and widening your lens and your scope so you can bring in the right, the best people doesn't mean you're, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean that, uh, that it's watering down the quality of applicants, right? Because you're still looking for the best applicants, but now you're just looking in different spaces that you haven't considered before. And you're thinking about and mitigating any filters that you may have had in the past, because we all have filters, right? We all carry those filters. So that's really the goal of DEI. And when we keep that in mind, um, we're going to be less likely to say, well, you know, I don't want it to be about bringing in less qualified employees. I don't want it to be about treating other people better and giving people more opportunities than others. That's not really what it is, right? And when we, we keep in mind that because of systemic oppression in the United States, not everyone who joins our organization, not everyone who's on our team has the same, comes from or came from, the, had the same opportunities to get to where they are, right? So we wanna be fair and equitable, not equal in how we treat people because it's impossible to treat people equally, right? Because we all have different backgrounds, but equitably. Yeah, amen, well said. Martine, it has just been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, to get connected, find out more about what Martine and her team can do to help you in your efforts in this area. Check out the book. Um, Martine, before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can connect with you, uh, where they can find your book, uh, any final word on the topic, and then we'll close for today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, you can go to my website at martinecalau.com. It'll, it'll direct you to um, Amazon to access, to purchase my book, my audio book, if you want. And also on my website, you can sign up for my free complimentary DEI masterclass. It's a one hour course. The next one is on June 9th from 1230 to 130. Uh, we go over the five top things that you can do um, to implement and really shift DEI within your organization within the next 90 days. So go to my website, sign up for the course, and I look forward to seeing you there. Perfect. Thank you, Martine. Again, I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Martine can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Check out my new book, The Future Leader, Creating and Transforming Next-Gen Organizations. Stemming from two decades of professional experience and over 600 in-depth interviews with executives, thought leaders, and scholars from across the globe, The Future Leader will help you explore the ordinary, everyday actions that will help you to prepare to lead in the future of work, to respond to an uncertain future, and to produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. 
Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue, what some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for your individuals, teams, and organizations. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership Ordinary, Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.